0: Man, I love baptisms. Uh, Those are fun and uh, hopefully a great means of encouragement to us. And uh, now let's, let's continue in worship and let God's Word be a great means of encouragement uh, to us as well. So thankful for Spencer Brown uh, being here last week and preaching to us out of the book of Genesis. And we're back into our Exodus series this morning. And So if you have a Bible, open it to Exodus chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a number of those in uh, the lobby, and you're welcome to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you and would encourage you uh, to take, take that, read that and use that. But as we return to Exodus, uh, remember, if you remember the last few weeks or if you weren't with us the last few weeks, this is uh, maybe an introduction to where we've been. We were moving through the plagues and and moving through. In fact, we've done nine of the ten plagues up to this point. And a lot of times we get to this final plague and and we almost treat it as if it's something distinct, or different than all the other plagues. And yet, I think it's really important for us to remember this is, in fact, the final plague. And all of this started when God sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, and he said, tell Pharaoh to let my people go, to which Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? To which God said, okay, let me show you, let me tell you, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And so as you move through the plagues, you have this building, this intensifying uh, movement towards really where we're going to be today and next week. And each of these plagues, or many of the plagues at least, function as this assault on the Egyptian gods. While at the same time, uh, Yahweh, the Lord, is proving that he and he alone is in fact God. And so as we come to Exodus 11 and a good part of Exodus 12, I'm going to argue this morning that the text is arguing this truth right here. This is really the main idea. This is where we're going. That God offers salvation to those who follow his word and submit to his plan. That God offers salvation to those who are going to follow God's word. They're going to submit to God's plan. I am going to do what God is telling me to do. And right here at the outset, let me just tell you that as we move through this, I want you to pay very close attention to the contrast that's going to exist between the Egyptians and between the Israelites. It's the exact same event, but two radically different outcomes that comes from this. And both of the outcomes are tied to whether or not the people choose to obey or choose to reject what God has said. And so the title of the message this morning is Salvation or Death, which you might be like, whoa, that's a little dramatic, Mike. No, it's not. That's what's actually happening here in the text In fact, the the responses that we see from the people will lead to one of those two conclusions, to salvation or to death, which is true for each and every one of us with respect to the cross. That how you and I view the cross and how we view Jesus will lead either to salvation or to death. And so while this is centuries before Jesus even shows up on the scene, make no mistake that Exodus 11 and 12 is very much pointing us forward to the cross. And so if you see anything, loved ones, if you see anything, if you grab anything this morning, God help us that we would recognize and see God's plan to, from the very beginning to rescue and redeem humanity through the cross and the incredible lengths that God is willing to go to in order to accomplish that. So let me do this. Before we go any further, I'm going to pray. We're going to ask God to have his way with us. And then to the best of our ability, we're going to walk through uh, this just incredible text. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are a God who offers salvation. We thank you that you are a God who rescues and saves and God, we pray this morning that as we walk through this, this text, which speaks volumes to us, not only in terms of the Exodus story, but really pointing us forward towards the cross and to the salvation that is found in you and you alone, that you would come and by the power of your Spirit, that you would have the freedom to move and speak and work within us here this morning. God, we pray not only for our church, but as is our custom to pray for another church in the area, we pray for Mosaic Church and for Pastor Adam Viramontas. God, we pray for that body of believers, that you would be honored and glorified in them, God, that you would choose to make much of yourself in that group of people. God, your people, in the same way that we would ask that you would choose to make much of yourself here in and amongst us now. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray that you would be glorified now. we just pray this all in your name, Lord. Amen. So again, the title of the message is Salvation or Death. This main idea that God offers salvation to those who follow his word and submit to his plan. And really three things that I want you to see here in Exodus 11. And we're going to move through a good part of chapter 12. uh, But three things. Here's the first thing around this idea of salvation or death. And it's a final warning. It's a final warning. A final warning is issued uh, here to Pharaoh from the Lord through Moses. In fact, let me read to you uh, Exodus 11, 1 through 10. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And then we're told that the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And so now in verse 4, Moses begins to speak. He's speaking to Pharaoh here, and he says this, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill." And all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. Pretty bold moment for Moses before Pharaoh. And we're told this, and he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. You can imagine, he's pretty fired up. He's got this final word to Pharaoh. Then verse 9 and 10, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So we have this final warning, this final warning that comes to uh, the people. And and, and again, just by way of reminder, this is the tenth and final plague. And, And I make that note because one of the things I don't want us to miss is God's not trying to trick Pharaoh. This isn't like that sneaky teacher or that obnoxious professor in college who's always trying to trick you. That's not going on. God's made it very clear from the beginning, this is what I want you to do. And repeatedly, Pharaoh has rejected that. And if anything, if anything, what we could say about God is that he's demonstrated this great patience and forbearance and mercy and grace as we have moved through this process. And this final warning comes. In fact, make note of these three things about this final warning. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, we see God's repeated promise. God is repeating a promise that he's made uh, throughout the Exodus narrative up to this point. He's reaffirming uh, to Moses uh, and and Aaron and the people what he's told them over and over again. I'm going to take you out of the land. In fact, when we began the book of Exodus, the, the first week we did just an overview of Exodus. And I, 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 we handed out this sheet. This is available in the lobby, but it's just an overview of Exodus. But on this sheet, we talk about some of the major themes of Exodus. And the first one on there is that God keeps his promises. And, and so here we are in chapter 11. And I just want to affirm for you, yet again, we're seeing that theme bore out again. That God is keeping his promises. In fact, notice just a few different ways that we see God referring back to uh, promises he's made. And, of course, what we're going to see in the next two weeks, the fulfillment of these promises. Verse 1, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. If you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, in verse 19 and 20, uh, what we're told is, is that God tells Moses at the burning bush that the king of Egypt will be compelled by a mighty hand... We've seen that play out over the course of the plagues. This is God's mighty hand. In verse 2 of chapter 11, uh, he says, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. Wouldn't it be awesome every time you moved, if you go around to your neighbors and be like, Hey, I need your gold and silver. That'd be pretty sweet, wouldn't it? probably move a lot more. Uh, You and I would be wealthier. Those who don't move would be impoverished uh, or you would just learn not to have gold and silver on hand. But see, this isn't the first time that God has talked about this. In fact, if you go back to chapter four, he talks about that you're gonna gonna plunder the Egyptians. And then if you were to look ahead to chapter 12, verse 36, that's exactly what happens. then if you look down in verse five, of Chapter eleven, he says, Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Now, if you go back to Exodus chapter four, Moses is, is being told by God that, that God, that Israel was God's firstborn, and that Egypt's firstborn was going to suffer because of the ways in which they had mistreated God's firstborn. There was a punishment that was coming. And so right off the bat, just even in these first few verses, what we see is God's repeated promises that they are being kept by God. Here's what I don't want you to miss. That there were undoubtedly moments from Israel's perspective that they did not feel like God was keeping his promises. Maybe you know what that feels like. Well, God, I don't feel like God is fulfilling what He said. I don't feel like God is keeping His promise. It doesn't seem to me that God is doing this. Now, here's what you got to understand: feelings aren't facts, are they? In fact, oftentimes feelings can betray you and can betray reality. But I mean, just think about the nation of Israel and where they've been. God promised, "I'm going to deliver you." The labor increased. The beatings intensified. They weren't immune to some of the difficulties and the hardships of the plagues. And so how easy it would be for them to be like, yeah, well, it didn't feel like God was fulfilling his promise to us either. And yet hindsight is going to prove something very, very different, isn't it? That God is absolutely keeping his promises. And I wonder if some of you are sitting here today and you feel maybe that same way that God hasn't kept his promise. Hey, God said, you said you would do this. You promised this would happen. You you told me this would come true. And where are you? Why aren't you dealing with this differently? Why am I still struggling with this? God, why am I in the midst of this struggle or difficulty? Maybe here's just a few ways that that might be playing out in your life. Maybe you feel like God is absent. God, where are you? Why can't I see you? You're absent, you feel like God is distant or that you're all by yourself. And what you need to hear is the promise that we're told in the book of Hebrews that is repeated over and over again prior to that in the scriptures that God will never leave you or forsake you. Loved ones, there's not a moment listen to me, there's not a moment in your life where God has not been with you. Maybe that's not your issue maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, no man, my my issue is I... I just cannot get over this sin. I am struggling in this this area of my life. I cannot seem to get victory over this. No matter how hard I try, no matter how much I do, I cannot seem to conquer this, whether it's anger or gossip or some addiction or some struggle. Like, men, try as I may, I find myself in failure. God, you promised... Okay, well, here's what God promised. God promised this, amongst other things in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that, there is good news in that. Amen? Okay, there's a lot of good news in that. But actually, there's just a little bit of bad news in that, too. Okay, here's the good news. God is working. Here's the bad news. You're not done until you're dead. Okay? And so you're just going to have to struggle and wrestle through some of these things. But it doesn't mean that there's not growing victory and growing movement in that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're suffering. You're suffering physically, you're f- suffering emotionally, you're suffering spiritually. would say a lot about that. Let me just speak Scripture to you here, and I would just encourage you to be reminded of what Peter tells the Exiled believers who are driven out of their homes because of their faith. And he says this, let those who suffer according to God's will, don't miss that. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. You find yourself here suffering. Would you just entrust your soul to the faithful creator who sees all of that? Loved ones, God is keeping his promises. Got to hold on to that. Notice this secondly about this final warning. This is really the heart of the warning is it's God's pronouncement of judgment. God's pronouncement of judgment. I know like today you're not supposed to talk about judgment. That doesn't exactly appeal to people, but it's obviously in the scripture. So we're going to talk about it. This is God's pronouncement of judgment. Here's Moses in front of Pharaoh saying, listen, here's what's going to happen. Your firstborn, they're going to die. That's what's going to happen. It's a pronouncement of judgment on Egypt. And maybe you're sitting here and you're going, Well, why Egypt? Like, what did they do? It's not fair for them. Like, they've got this tyrannical leader who's a nut job. Why should the people suffer? Well, because the people aren't innocent. These are the same people who were complicit in an attempt to genocidally eliminate all of the Hebrew males. Remember that? These are the same people who enslaved another people group, who oppressed another people group, who mistreated another people group. They're not innocent. They're complicit. In fact, one commentator said this he said, The wailing of the Egyptians was justice for the 400 years of wailing from Israel at the hands of the Egyptians. They're getting exactly what they deserve. Because, loved ones, you got to get this. This is what God does with sin. He deals with it. God deals with sin. God will always deal with sin. Always, always, always. And, and as you and I begin to see God, or begin to see sin the way that God sees sin, all of a sudden we become aware of just how dire our situation is. And just the, the level of the severity of of the issue in front of us, which actually helps us to understand Passover and, and ultimately the cross. It's God's pronouncement of judgment. Now, let me say two things about this judgment here briefly. First of all, make note of this. Look at what he says uh, in verse 5. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. We're talking about God's pronouncement of judgment. You've got to understand that there is a comprehensive nature to judgment. It's comprehensive. This will run throughout the entirety of the social strata. So it's not just for the rich. It's not just for the poor. uh, It's not just for a particular demographic or group. No, no. All of us, all of us find ourselves underneath this. But notice not only that, but it's not even limited to people. I mean, even the firstborn of the cattle Are going to suffer this same fate. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 8 when he's talking about that creation is groaning to be released from the futility of, of, of the brokenness and the sin that we live in. There's a comprehensive nature to God's judgment. Now, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. No one is immune to that, including you. Don't think you're the exception. Don't think, well, God's going to treat me differently. No, God's going to treat you like he treats everyone else. There's a comprehensive nature to this. Secondly, make note of this. We've talked about this repeatedly, but make note with respect to this pronouncement of judgment. It's the Lord's supremacy overall. That God is supreme overall. He he says in verse 7, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He said that multiple times. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm over this thing in a way that you cannot control if you wanted to, Pharaoh. And he continues to drive home the point that he is the one true God, and all of the Egyptian gods are false gods. And I think this is actually happening in verse 7. You might be like, what, are you, what Bible are you reading from? I don't see that in verse 7. Well, look at the beginning of verse 7. It says, But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. Now, listen, loved ones, when you're reading in the scriptures, especially in narrative, and you come across something and go, well, that's kind of weird. Why is that there? That's usually a clue or an indication that God is pointing you to something uh, very pointed and, and important. Because up to this point, we've heard nothing of dogs. That hasn't been an emphasis. But so why why a dog not growling against any of the people of Israel? Now, I don't know that this is true. Okay, this is just conjecture. So I'll step away from my Bible here. I'll just say this is my conjecture on this. But I think what, what Moses is actually saying here is that this is the final assault on the final Egyptian god. Anubis was the god of the underworld and was depicted as a dog or a canine. And I think what Moses is actually saying is um, the dog of the underworld is going to be barking like crazy at the Egyptians that are coming to meet him. He won't even see one of us. I think that's what he's saying. And it's one final shot at another Egyptian God. And God is proving once again that he is supreme over all things. It's God's pronouncement of judgment. Verse 9 and 10, we see God's purposes in the plagues. And I won't say much about this because we've talked at length about this, but in short, he's going to take his people out and he's going to make himself known. Now, loved ones, you might not feel like God is accomplishing your plan or his plan in your life. You might be looking at your life going, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Listen, you can't see it all. In the same way that the people of, of Israel, they couldn't see it all. Even at this moment, they still couldn't see it all. See, because we don't have the perspective to put it all together the way that they do. Will you trust that God is working out his plan and that God is keeping his promises? Right? This final warning, if you're in opposition to God, functions as more that you need to understand that judgment is coming. If you are right with God, this is, this is a reminder that God keeps his promises. And so notice this. Secondly, with salvation or death, we have a final warning. Chapter 12 now begins to describe uh, what we refer to as Passover. And there's this stark contrast that's going to happen between uh, the, the, the Israelites and the Egyptians in what unfolds. Let me just give you briefly kind of the, the structure of uh, the, the next 32 verses. And we won't read all of these verses for the sake of time. But in verses 1 through 20, God is talking to Moses and Aaron. In verses 21 through 28, Moses and Aaron go back to the nation of Israel and they describe what God has said and and tell them this is what we're to do. And then verses 29 through 32 is where the actual 10th plague unfolds and death uh, runs rampant over Egypt and Pharaoh gives the people of Israel the word to go. And here's what I want to do. I want to look at verses 1 through 28 and this idea of Passover Um, and, and the institution of this. And here's what I wrote down, this idea of salvation or death, that salvation is offered to those who listen to God. Salvation is offered to those who listen to God. Now, Passover, uh, what, what is happening here, plays this monumentally substantial role, not only in Israel's history, but throughout uh, all of human history, and certainly in our history as Christians as well. Because this is not just about uh, not, not, not suffering death at the hands of the destroyer. This is not just about coming out of Egypt. This is pointing us to the cross. Anytime you read the Old Testament, you have to understand that the Old Testament is leaning forwards toward the cross. Always, always, always. Now, I'm not saying that Moses is sitting here writing this going, oh, this is brilliant. I love how God is weaving together the cross into this. And I I doubt Moses saw that. I doubt most of the Old Testament authors had any idea that was happening. But God absolutely knew that that was happening. And very, very intentional. And so notice, right, salvation is offered uh, to those who obey. First of all, this, verses 1 through 20, uh, we see God's salvation through sacrifice. Verses 1 through 20 is what God does. Verses 21 through 28 is our response. But let's look at verses 1 through 20. God's salvation through sacrifice. In fact, four things here that I want to break down in verses 1 through 20. I'll give you all four up front. We're going to work through them all. Uh, First of all, the requirements for sacrifice. Secondly, the instructions for sacrifice. Thirdly, the purpose of sacrifice. And finally, this, the reminder to remember. So there they all are. Uh, it looks like they're all on the screen. Let's walk through each of these here for the next few moments. God's salvation through sacrifice. First of all, this is the requirements for sacrifice. Let me read verses 1 through 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. Now, this event is so huge, it's going to reorient their calendar. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and you shall make your count for the lamb. Now, starting in verse 5, he gets very specific about... What type of lamb would be suitable for this? Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. You have the requirements of sacrifice. And, and God is making it very, very clear what would and would not be acceptable for this sacrifice. Why? Because he really cared about this moment in Egypt, yes. But that is so uh, substandard, uh, but below the, the bigger biblical picture, which is driving us ultimately to the cross. Now, when you think about this concept, this idea of lamb in the Old Testament, this is not the only place that this shows up. In fact, this isn't even the first time that this shows up. But what's fascinating, when you start um, tracking some of the major moments in the Old Testament around this idea of lamb and sacrifice, what you realize is there's this obvious progression that moves us to the cross. Let me try to do this quickly. If you were to go back to Genesis 22, you have Abraham. And God has told Abraham to take his one and only son and to go sacrifice him. And so they go out to the mountain. And, of course, Abraham's kind of freaking out because he's like, yeah, where's the sacrifice? And what happens right before he's going to sacrifice Isaac? What's caught in the thicket? A ram. Because one of the things you're going to realize is God is going to provide what God requires always. And so there uh, you have this ram in the thicket. The ram is sacrificed. And there you have a one-to-one correlation. The ram for the son. You get to Passover, and notice what it says. You have a lamb, at the end of verse 3, a lamb for a household. And so now you see this this, this progression. It's not just one-to-one, now it's for the household. When you move forward uh, in, in the Pentateuch, and you get to where God begins to unfold the day of atonement, you have a lamb for the nation. You see how this is moving? And then you get to the New Testament, and you have John the Baptist in Genesis 1, and he sees Jesus, and he says, The Lamb of God, and he's obviously thinking of the Passover Lamb, who takes away the sin of, what? The world. See, what you've got to understand about each and every one of these lambs is they're a type. They're a sign that are meant to point us to Jesus Israel, when they put blood on the doorpost later in chapter 12, they're spared from the destroyer that night, but they are not spared from the ultimate wrath of God. That doesn't come ultimately until Jesus comes and dies in our place. But that door or that blood on the doorpost is pointing us to something far greater. See, what we got to understand is even here in Exodus 12, Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, Christ and his redemption are the subject of the whole word of God. Not parts, not pieces, not some of it. All of it is tied to Christ and his redemption. But we're talking about the requirements for sacrifice. So for Jesus to be our Passover lamb, he had to meet God's standard for perfection. And the Bible actually goes to great lengths to prove that. In 1 Peter 2, we're told that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. In Hebrews 4, we're told that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. In Hebrews 9, it's speaking of Jesus that he offered himself without, or that he was unblemished, offered himself unblemished to God, which is tapping right into Old Testament thinking. And here's, I think, you know, the the, the most prominent piece of all. When was Jesus crucified? During Passover. Random chance? I think not. Okay? Uh, In fact, here, let me just flesh this out a little bit more for you. The day that Jesus entered into the city was the same day that the Passover lambs would have been driven into the city. When Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, they were celebrating the Passover meal. So when he's telling those guys, this is my body, this is my blood, you know what he's saying to them? He's saying, I'm the ultimate Passover lamb. That's what he's telling them. When Jesus is on the cross and he's breathing his last in that late afternoon, you know what all of the Jewish families were doing? They were getting ready to go slaughter their lamb. And at that same time, the high priest was in the temple and he was getting ready to offer up a lamb for the sins of the nation. And yet there hung the lamb of the God who took away the sins of the world. That beautiful reality is all rooted in what is unfolding right here in Exodus 12. That Jesus met the requirements of sacrifice, that he was the only one who was adequate to truly save and rescue us. I just ask you, have you put your hope and trust for G- in Jesus and in him alone to save and to rescue you? Because he is the only adequate sacrifice text goes on and tells us this, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Then he begins to describe what they're to do, how they're to cook the, the, the lamb and how they're to eat the lamb. Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, of course, preparing them for a quick exodus. And in verses 7 through 11, we see the instructions for sacrifice. This is what you're to do with the blood. This is what you're to do with the body. The blood functioned as a covering. The lamb was to be eaten. Let me give you two theological terms that are massively important to our understanding that are both unfolding right here in Exodus 12. Here's the first. Write this one down. Expiation. E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N, expiation. Expiation means a covering for sin. I mean, literally, we see that with the blood on the doorpost. Right? This is a covering for sin. This is a substitute. Think scapegoat. That we're covered by someone else, by something else, for our sin. Ultimately, Jesus would be our substitute. Secondly, here's the second word. It's propitiation. P R O P I T I A T I O N, propitiation. This word carries with it this idea of a penalty that had to be paid, and that God's sacrifice bears out the wrath of God and satisfies it completely. And so, in this, you have both this concept of covering and of death. Now, if you get, if you move along. Um, through the first five books of the Bible, all written by Moses, you get to Leviticus 16. And the nation of Israel would do this fascinating thing where they would have two lambs. And they would choose one lamb that became the scapegoat that was essentially sent out, that was exiled, and the other lamb that was slaughtered. And it's the same thing that we see happening here. It's both the covering for sin and it's the bearing of God's wrath. It's both and, not just one or the other, but it's a both and. This is what Christ will ultimately do for you and I that his blood will cover over us. And so that when God looks at us, here's here's the, the, the payoff on this right now. I'm guessing some of you had great weeks. I'm guessing others of you did not have a great week. I'm guessing some of you failed miserably this week. Listen to me, listen to me. If you are in Christ, when God looks at you right now, he does not see your failure. He does not see your shortcoming. He does not see your issues or your problems. He sees the righteousness of Christ. That's the expiation. Here's the other thing. When God looks at you right now, if you are in Christ, you are not under the wrath of God. You are not awaiting the wrath of God. That is not coming to you because it has already been poured out upon Christ. And so you are not awaiting wrath. You are awaiting an eternity in the presence of God. That is the propitiation. That is beautiful, isn't it? That's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. This is the instructions of what's going on. I love this quote. Let me read this quote that I think so um, beautifully describes kind of both sides of this tran- transaction. That's, this is a cosmic ripoff. It's so one-sided, it's unreal. Okay, but it truly is a transaction. Here, listen to this. When we look up to the cross, we see that payment has been made for our sin. And what does God see when he looks down at the cross? He sees that it is stained with the blood of his very own firstborn son. God does not have a substitute to offer in place of his son. His son is the substitute. And when God sees the blood of his son, he says, It is enough. My justice has been satisfied. The price for sin is fully paid. Death will pass over you, and you will be safe forever. This is what God does for us, and it is beautiful. The instructions are of sacrifice. Thirdly, we have the purpose of sacrifice. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, if it was just verse 12, it's a little bit different story, but look at what verse 13 says. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Don't miss this massive element here. Because the destroyer wasn't just going to roll through Egypt and ignore the people of Israel. He was going to go through the land of Goshen as well. And the only reason that the fate of the people of Israel plays out any differently than those of Egypt is because of the blood over the door. Here's what you have to understand that verse 12 and 13 is telling us. We're no different than the Egyptians. That's what the text is telling us. You and I are, are sinners. We're, we're, we're rebellious. See, Israel is, is not spared because they're better. God's not like, you know, you guys are actually kind of righteous, so you're good. These other are, are knuckleheads over here, they're just, they're, they're a train wreck. So I got to go do work. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, you are equally sinful. You are equally needy. The difference is that there is a substitute that atoned for God's wrath. And because of that, God's judgment is going to pass over them. And this is what happens for us in Christ. Loved ones, listen, listen. Do not confuse Do not confuse God's redemptive forgiveness in your life and in my life as some sense of self-righteousness. You are not righteous. I love you. You're not righteous. You are a broken, rebellious, wicked sinner. You are just covered by a perfect sacrifice. And that's true for anyone who's in Christ. No one comes to Christ because they have it all together. You come to Christ because you're broken and wicked, and you realize, I can't do it on my own. And judgment is coming. And because of our sin, we deserve what the nation of Egypt gets. We just don't get it because we're covered under the blood. Finally, this, verse 14 through 20, we see this reminder to remember. He says this in verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. See, what God wanted the nation of Israel to do, he's like, I want you guys to remember this. I want you to be reminded of this. I want you to be able to come back to this. Claire Davis is a church historian, and, and he describes the Christian life as a combination of amnesia and deja vu. And, so check out this quote. I love this quote that he has. He says, I know I've forgotten this before. Anyone ever been there? Apparently, as you get older, that happens more often. Um, so I've heard. Just kidding. Been there. Uh, but, but right, this reminder to remember and what he's talking about, what God is instituting for the people. Because I, I didn't read the rest of, of, of uh, verses 15 through 20, but God's saying, you're going to keep doing this. Every year you're going to do this. And what he's saying is, in that same way that they need that, we need that to be reminded of of God's work over and over and over again. That's the beauty of baptism, right? We saw those people. It It reminds us, yeah, God's still at work. God still rescues. God still saves. That the gospel is just as important to me today as it was the day that I got saved. And so Passover began to function as this annual reminder for the people to stop and to reflect and to remember and to be reminded of God's goodness and all that he has done. What reminders, what rhythms, what celebrations do you have in your life to do this? I mean, I would hope in, what is it, 11 days from now, that Thanksgiving would be one of those things at some level that we would do that. I would hope Christmas would function that way, maybe your birthday. Uh, My wife's really good about letting our anniversary be a time that we look back, not only on the last year, but over the course of our marriage, to be reminded of these things. But this reminder to remember. So I'll just shamelessly plug Night of Thanks this Friday. Randy was right in the announcements when he said, you know, people ask all the time, why don't you guys do this more often? Well, maybe we should. But one of the most disappointing things, that's a night where the room should look like this. It should be full in here, but it won't be. It's one of the easiest rhythms, one of the easiest reminders to come and to celebrate what God has done. I mean, that's a corporate way in which we accomplish this, to remember what God has done. And that's where God finishes with Moses and Aaron. God's salvation through sacrifice. Verse 21 through 28 is our response in obedience. And I won't say much about this. Uh, Suffice to say, Moses and Aaron go back to the people. They lay out what God has said. Let me just read to you the end of verse 27 and 28. The people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. See, we respond to God's saving work by doing what we're told to do. So the first step of that is that you and I would repent of our sins. Now, if you're sitting here this morning, going, what, what is repentance? Well, it's where you turn from sin. It's where you turn from a life of living for yourself or where you think you're the authority and not God's the authority. You say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm going to choose to follow Jesus, which is what you heard from these six people uh, when, in various forms in the baptism uh, tank. So first of all, we're going to repent. Second of all, I'm going to surrender. I'm going to submit my life to Jesus. Here's another way of thinking that. God is God, not you. You're not God. And so you live accordingly. And then thirdly, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he chooses to lead me. Salvation is offered to those who listen to what God has said for them. Briefly, Verses 29 through 32. We're actually going to start in verse 29 next week. But I want us to see this contrast here this morning. Verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Isn't that chilling? That's so insanely chilling. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And then this last line is fascinating. And bless me also. Part of you is you realize, Pharaoh realizes that he's broken, and part of you is like, you're a moron. If you would have just done this a while ago, God probably would have. But... You're hard-hearted and you're rebellious. And here's what we see in 29 through 32 is that judgment is given for those who reject God. So salvation is available. If you will listen to God, salvation is available. Let me just shoot straight with you. Judgment is what awaits those who choose to reject God. I don't say that with any joy. It's an incredibly sobering reality. But I mean... There was not a house where someone was not dead. I mean, can you imagine the horror of that night and that scream that would pierce the darkness, the first one followed by another and then another and then just wails and laments and screaming that went on all night and just piercing the night sky. But judgment is given for those who reject God. Loved ones, each and every one of us have to deal with this issue of sin. we going to allow it to fall upon Christ the Passover lamb we're like fools are we going to say no I don't want that I'm going to take this on my own because I don't want to come under another there's a just judgment that's going to come for all who will reject the commands of Christ it really is that simple and easy salvation or death Here's what Moses says towards the end of his life in Deuteronomy 30. He says this to the nation. I think quite fitting for us this morning. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession. That sounds awesome. It's all tied. It's all tied to an obedience and a submission to God and what he has commanded of us. Here's the alternative. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Passover presents that exact same reality. I will submit to what God has said. And there will be life, or I will reject what God has said, and there will be death. That same truth is going to be bore out later in the life of Christ. Loved ones, you have two and only two choices in front of you. You have the choice of salvation, or you have the choice of death. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Jesus, that's a weighty reality. It's a heavy, uh, in some senses, very dark truth. I mean, even in this moment, I almost feel like, well, there's got to be a third option. And yet we know that there's not. It is salvation or it is death. Death. And so, God, we thank you for the just piercing clarity that your word gives. And I just pray that in this moment right now, that we would not race out of, we would not attempt to rationalize, that we would not attempt to... Um, push off to say, I'll deal with it later. I'll get to it at another time. I'll find a, a different time, a different place, a different way. I don't want to right now, but just in this moment, God, would you help us?